Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. This past June, a fragile coalition of eight parties formed a new government of Israel, ousting from power the long-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The new government, led by the new Prime Minister, Natalie Bennett, came together after three months of negotiations following the March election, the fourth Israeli election in two years. It seems that, for now, the Israeli political deadlock of the, of the past two years seems to have been resolved. Or has it? That is the question I want to pose to the PC Political Science Department's Israeli politics expert, Associate Professor Ruth Benardsi. Listeners may remember the learned commentary Professor Benartzi provided last year in a couple of Beyond Your Newsfeed episodes on the Israeli election crisis. I'm sure that she will have interesting insights into the new Israeli government and its likelihood of success. Along with enlightening us about what is happening in Israel, I also intend to ask Professor Benartzi about other Middle East issues, including the recent return to power of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Professor Ruth Benartzi, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always good to have lots to talk about. Okay, uh, Professor Benartzi, so the last two, I guess, two and a half years now in Israel have been kind of like that movie Groundhog Day. Uh, you'd have an election uh, in a kind of divided political environment. Uh, it produces an inconclusive result, uh, difficulty forming a government. Uh, the government fails after a little bit. There's another election, essentially the same result, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now this last March, again, a fourth election, uh, the outcome in electoral terms did not seem all that different. Again, no clear coalition victor uh, from the election, but we have a different outcome. Uh, this time, a new government without uh, a Prime Minister Netanyahu has been formed. So why don't you uh, start us off by talking a little bit about that March election and take us through what brought about uh, the formation of this new government. Um, so, you know, this was really a toss up because uh, you had experts and pundits on all sides who are kind of predicting opposite, complete opposite things. We didn't really know what was going to happen. But you're right that the results in all of these for elections were relatively similar just because it's the same electorate and people in a parliamentary system, multi-party system like the one in Israel, people tend to stick, there's very little shift between political parties. And so this stalemate was just going to continue. And so we, the, the, the end result of this coalition that ended up ousting Netanyahu has to be taken in the context of these multiple elections that did not produce clear a clear cut um, winning coalition on either side, where finally there was election fatigue. And that election fatigue helped shepherd a coalition of strange bedfellows. Um, these are political parties that one, one would never anticipate or expect to be sitting together in a coalition. And what they managed to find, and it's because this process was so prolonged and for more than two years, there was an interim government. Essentially, there was a government that was just in waiting until somebody got elected. So it's it, it was... Um, it was this kind of strange limbo situation. No budget was passed. Um, everything was in stalemate. But while everything is in stalemate, as we know, in policy and in politics, things continue to happen behind the scenes. You know, whether it's there's certain things that the government or the prime minister can continue to do, even with an interim government. You know, the agreements that were signed, for example, um, with uh, the, the Abraham Accords, the, the various expansion of settlements in the occupied territories, things continue to happen. And so this stalemate that was, uh, this political stalemate that was accompanied by policy creep on the part of the Likud, of Prime Minister Netanyahu, in addition to uh, unraveling of all sorts of corruption um, issues and the indictment of Netanyahu, all of those created the kind of the lowest common denominator that brought together these political parties from complete opposite sides of the aisle. So, so that's very interesting. So it's 
it's kind of the fatigue with elections. People didn't want to have to go through another election. Uh, there's all kinds of now reasons why people are upset with Netanyahu and what he was doing, and that that managed to pull them together, even though they're so diverse in terms of ideology, et cetera. Right. In terms of parties, the Likud or Netanyahu still got more votes, more seats than any other party, but it wasn't enough to create a coalition. Um, and this new, and Naftali Bennett, who is now the prime minister, he's a leader of a party um, who is even to the right of the Likud. He's a, a kind of, it's a, it's a settler party. Um, and he, uh, and he got very few seats. He's a minority seat. And then he still was able to become prime minister because of the gesture that the next the biggest party, a centrist party headed by Yair Lapid, who is now um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the, the Secretary of State, um, he stepped aside. He realized that the only way to create a coalition that can oust Netanyahu, and this is what really it ended up being all about. It ended up being about ousting Netanyahu to kind of heal the political processes um, and then um, create a transition government. And this is what they call themselves, the transition government um, in the hopes that when there's another elections and it's likely not gonna be four years after the last one, it's probably gonna be sooner than that, um, there will be a newly coup party led by different people with some new, and the, and the political rhetoric and the political toxicity that was endemic in the last um, decade or so with the, under the leadership of Netanyahu will be gone. That was one of the things that they all came together, the right wing, left wing, center. Um, the, the agreement was that this is, um, that this is causing more harm than good. Uh, and they were able to come around domestic issues that were important to all of them. So they were able to find some sort of common ground and they formed their government based on that common ground. In addition to the leader of the centrist second largest party who should have been prime minister according kind of to tradition, but there's no law about this. Um, basically anybody, uh, even a single person party um, can become prime minister if enough parties recommend that person or recommend that party to be the leadership party. So in this case, they all banded together. They all kind of bit their lips, even the, the, the civil rights and the left wing parties and said, okay, Naftali Bennett is a right-wing settler. He's a right-wing ideologue. He's more even ideological than Netanyahu, but we're still gonna recommend him to be prime minister because Bibi's worse. So, and, you know, and, this is and, what happened. And there's a power sharing arrangement, right? Yes. That he's supposed to be prime minister for just two years and then Lapid is gonna take over. Right, which is one of the reasons why I'm saying that it's unlikely that we will see a four-year. I think that the centrist and left um, parties that are part of this coalition are going to try to um, make as many gains as possible during the two years that that Bennett is there. And already we're seeing some change, a change in the atmosphere, change in the rhetoric. There is more cooperation. Uh, even when there is, like yesterday, for example, there was a uh, an attack, a terrorist knife attack in the um, central bus station in Jerusalem that wounded two people, um, uh, a Palestinian who wounded two um, Jewish Israelis who were there. Um, it, it, it didn't become, it, it was handled in a, um, for lack of a better term, I would say an adult way. It was not, um, it was not politicized in the way that Netanyahu uh, and his cronies in the last decade, I politicized everything, every every single um, uh, act that had happened. We see more diplomacy. We see um, already an improvement in the relationship between the Israeli government and the American government. Both parties, or especially the Democratic Party, that was very much um, distanced from Netanyahu because Netanyahu made Israel a political issue. Um, and, um, and, and this is despite the fact that Naftali Bennett is saying very clearly that he does not support a Palestinian state and under his watch, there will not be a Palestinian state. Um, but there are, there's an understanding and Naftali Bennett understands the importance of the strategic relationship that Israel has with democracies around the world, that Israel has with the Western world um, and not just with 
um, rising authoritarian regimes, that is, which is the direction that Netanyahu was taking Israel. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about Natali Bennett, his background, uh, how he got involved in uh, Israeli politics, and and uh, also, I'd like your view of some of the commentary I've been reading since he became prime minister that he's he's kind of uh, toned down his right wing settler ideology. Yeah, so um, he his party, which is called Yamina, right, which is to the right. That's what it means to the right of the Likud, um, is considered a settler party. It's a party that um, advocates for the land of the greater land of Israel, um, for annexing even um, the West Bank, for um, uh, it, typically it's a party that gets support within the settler community. He, however, and the number two in his party, Ayala Chaked, um, who is, um, uh, um, sh uh, she's a minister now in the government as well, neither of them live in a settlement. They don't live in the occupied territories. He lives in a, in a, in a very wealthy upscale suburb of Tel Aviv. And uh, he's a former high tech. He was, uh, he was um, uh, uh, in combat in the IDF and the uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, in an elite unit. Um, his father, I think is British. He, he grew up in Israel. Um, he, again, he lives in the Tel Aviv suburb. He made a lot of money in high tech uh, and, and he lives a very kind of upscale, upper, uh, upper middle class, upper class lifestyle. He entered into politics at a relatively young age. He was the head of the Likud chapter um, when he was in college. So he started to become active in, and remember in Israel, People go to college after the army, after some time off. So in general, they're older than American college students. Um, but he was already politically active in the Likud um, when he was in, in college, when he was getting his undergraduate degree. And he worked in Prime Minister Netanyahu's office. He was his chief of staff. So he knows him up close. So he's, his, his political start was in the Likud. And then he turned to the right. Um, he does wear, he, he is an observant um, uh, uh, person, but he's modern observant. He's not ultra orthodox. So one of his, um, uh, one of the issues that he had advanced is more equality, more um, uh, sharing of the burden uh, between, uh, among citizens, including the ultra orthodox who are now exempt from many um, obligations to the state, including military service um, and taxes. So he did agree to, and to the great criticism of these ultra-Orthodox um, parties. And, and to his credit, I would say that he kind of managed to withstand the criticism directed at him, calling him not a real Jew, um, all sorts of anti-Semitic attacks at him, at Naftali Bennett, from the ultra-Orthodox because he left them out of the coalition. Um, they were committed to Netanyahu and to the Likud. Um, they committed not to being part of any coalition that included center or left um, secular parties. And he um, agreed to form a coalition that excluded them. This is the first time in many years that the ultra-Orthodox parties, since 1992, that the ultra-Orthodox parties are not in the government. And that is a very big deal to them because being part of the government means also being part, being very close to making decisions, uh, being influential in making decisions about budgets, about allocation of funds, um, uh, and about other policy that is very important to the ultra-Orthodox community. So that is one common ground that Naftali Bennett managed to find with some of the other parties, the kind of unlikely um, uh, coalition members. Uh, yeah, so they, they also would be interested in reigning in the ultra-Orthodox and, and perhaps addressing some of, a lot of these policies ultra-Orthodox are interested in involve social issues like marriage and uh, uh, yeah. uh, what, what can happen on the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. Yes, uh, and the most, for the most important is kind of the, the dominance of the ultra-Orthodox over Judaism, over what constitutes Judaism, over conversion, right. for example. One of the things that Naftali Bennett agreed, right, there's already been a change, is in conversion pol policy. Who is allowed to form conversions? Who is allowed to, um, to provide, you know, in Israel, religion and state are not separated. So there's many different, whether it's marriage, um, death, um, 
uh, licensing for kosher, which means and a lot of and, and restaurants and cafes and businesses need that in order to be successful businesses. That was all monopolized by the ultra orthodox. Opening it up to competition where uh, these um, uh, observers or those who are able to certify kosher products are not only ultra-Orthodox, means that now they don't have monopoly over that market. Um, it means that there could be um, other, um, uh, other streams of Judaism who are allowed to perform conversions, perform weddings. So there is more openness. Um, and this is something that they're very critical of because they consider that um, and, and they're critical of it, not just for cynical ways, not, not just for cynical reasons um, because of budget and money, but also because they genuinely believe in this extremist version of Judaism. So, you, you know, this is very similar to the various differences and disagreements over religion and the role of religion in society that we see uh, in Christianity, that we see in Islam. So the ultra-Orthodox parties um, you know, take it, you know, take the letter of the law, literally to the letter of the law, and they would like to implement as much as possible religious law, not so different than Sharia law, you know, the Taliban, for example, just said, yes, girls and women can go to university, uh, or to school, but not with men, you know, in Israel for the ultra orthodox, it's exactly the same ultra they their position is that ultra orthodox women could go to university, but they can't sit in a classroom with men. And you know what? Israeli universities, because um, because they need the bodies in the classrooms and because they need this as a big constituency and a growing constituency, is actually making some classes available and degrees available where there is, and it's a very big fight within Israeli society uh, and criticism of Israeli universities, Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University, and offering classes that separate women and men. Um, so, you know, this is, these are some of the big fights over the role of religion in politics and in society um, that is now coming to the forefront with Naftali Bennett ousting uh, the ultra-Orthodox parties out of the government, not giving them a seat. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that this, this issue is this kind of cross-cutting, I guess in political sense we would say it's orthogonal, it, it cuts across the normal sort of left-right divide, and it, it's a way that these different uh, Bennett and his, his right-wing supporters can ally with more left-wing supporters uh, on this issue about how mm -hmm. to deal with the ultra-orthodox and, and the, yeah. their monopoly on these, these issues. Yeah. So that, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting that that's, that's an issue that kind of brings them together here. Yeah. Along with wanting to get rid of that. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's kind of the role of religion, the role of the state, what it means to have, you know, because the, the entity of a state, as we teach in, in our political science department and international relations, a state itself is a secular entity. It's not a real, it's not a tangible thing. It's, it's borders and people and a government and a bureaucracy to run a society. It's a social contract between uh, people and their government, whether it's a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime, a monarchy or a democracy or a republic, um, you know, this is, this is what a state is. Once you also introduce religion into the equation, and when Israel is so intertwined with religion, uh, because it's the Jewish state, because of the reason why Israel was, was uh, 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 became an independent state in the location and the geographic location where it is, is based on religion. Um, the you know the the Jewish state Jewish history um, this is where uh, 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 you know theologically this is where the Jews come from um, and again and so and and even the early Zionists uh, in the 1900 in the 1800s 1900s disputed that there was an idea of you know yes we need to have a land for that because of anti-Semitism in Europe, a land for the Jews where they can be free and protected. But why does that have to be there? Why does that have to be in biblical lands? Can it be somewhere else? There was an argument among those Zionists on, um, on the role of religion and the role of Judaism in a modern state. And this continues to this day. Um, and it's, uh, it's become more difficult because the ultra-Orthodox community has grown in a faster pace uh, than the rest of the uh, Jewish population. And so that makes them a powerful force and they have a say, they are citizens of the country. Um, and so they do have 
a very strong position on their issues and it creates a, a lot of friction um, that you know, needs to be resolved. Re to return to Bennett for a minute. So, so uh, what do you think about this argument that Bennett's kind of toned down his, his, uh, his reputation or his, 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 his sort of ret settler ideology uh, since he became prime minister? Is there anything to that? And, it, and if that's the case, um, how does that affect his support uh, among his base, which is in the settler community? Yeah, so I'm not sure he really toned it down. So, you know, the Likud and Netanyahu's cronies and supporters would like us to think that he did because they're portraying him and they are definitely um, engaged in a media blitz and a social media blitz and attacking him and attacking him from the right saying, you know, he was just a phony. He really is just an elitist, you know, Tel Aviv, um, upper class, rich person who only worries about himself. And he's not really concerned about the future of the Jewish state. And he is pandering to Arab leaders. For example, he already met with Abu Mazen with a president of the Palestinian Authority. He just met with Sisi, the uh, Egyptian president. Um, he, he met with Biden. You know, that's something that's very much that upset Netanyahu very much. Biden, when he got elected, um, took his sweet long time to call Netanyahu uh, back after Netanyahu congratulated him. Um, he, he, he waited, he left him to, to be one of the last um, allies that uh, that he called, who he called, but Bennett was one of the first prime ministers, uh, one of the first leaders invited in person to the White House. So he, um, uh, uh, you know, so there's there's this sense of uh, of kind of the Likud and those who are left out of this government wanting to draw a line to portray themselves as the true right wing, um, and they want to portray Bennett as a uh, as a lefty in disguise uh, and somebody who's actually always been lefty. I don't buy that, um, but he is more of a realist. He realizes that there are certain things that he cannot do, partly because of his coalition, um, if he wants to maintain, if he doesn't want the government to collapse, because he do, does have coalition members um, in a coalition agreement, which is like a le legal agreement, that, that prevents him. They decided that they are not going to expand settlements. They decided, or they decided that there's going to be, quote unquote, um, uh, 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 um, uh, protecting of the, the status quo. I, I don't like that word because it's never really status quo, but not making any big moves when it comes to the West Bank. That was the agreement between the coalition members. And so he's so far pretty much honoring that agreement. Um, and he also doesn't wanna anger the United States. He doesn't wanna anger um, the European allies. He's taking a very different approach to Israel's relationship um, with, um, with the rest of the world. While Netanyahu didn't mind ruffling the feathers in the United States or in the European Union, Bennett is much more mindful of the strategic relationship. And because of that, he is more, um, uh, uh, he's more guarded, he's more strategic. He doesn't seem at least on the face of it, at least in his public persona to the world, um, he is not a right-wing ideologue. Um, he doesn't speak like a right-wing ideologue. And that is maybe why some have said that he is toning down um, his rhetoric. He did say to the, in the Israeli media that under his watch, a Palestinian state would never materialize. So that stance of his continues and he is very adamant that there will be no Palestinian state under his watch. So he hasn't abandoned his core views, but uh the way that he portrays himself and uh, is, is, is kind of toned down the, the rhetoric and, and the like. Yeah, we've gotten so used to the, 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 the whistles and pomp and, 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 the, uh, and that kind of rhetoric. I mean, think, you know, Trump, this is what we can compare the Likud to. Um, there was a lot, of, uh, um, a lot of noise and Bennett is much more of a 
um, he doesn't seek the limelight as much. For example, when he came to the United States um, to meet with Biden, you know, it, uh, everything happened during the Afghanistan withdrawal. So like he, his meeting with Biden had to be postponed by a day. He had to stay in the United States for an extra 24 hours because of the uh, because of Shabbat, because of um, Saturday, um, his meeting was postponed from a Thursday to a Friday. Um, but he didn't go around doing lots of media interviews. He didn't go around attacking American politicians who don't agree with him, which was something that Netanyahu did very typically did every time he came to the United States. He didn't go before Republican politicians to denounce the Biden no. government. <laughs> no, Netanyahu no, no. He's he's very much toned. He's he's a he's he he's still right wing, um, but his uh, he is more toned down, and he is uh, more interested in maintaining uh, a good relationship. And he understands that Israel um, is in is is not completely independent of the United States and Europe, and it needs the support of the United States and Europe, and it can't become a partisan issue. I think, it seems to me, like he's more mindful of it, uh, which is why he agreed to be part of this coalition. But again, we can, you know, we still have to wait and see what really actually happens because, um, you know, we can't, just based on a few months, uh, we can't say that he has turned from being uh, uh, a right, the leader of a right-wing party that is even more to the right of the Likud, all of a sudden uh, he became a, um, a dove uh, seeking, um, uh, seeking a, a, a permanent settlement to a conflict that no other government was able to solve. Can we turn to Netanyahu for a moment? So, so what's his status? He's facing legal difficulties. Uh, what do you see happening with him? He's sort of carved out this role as leader of the opposition uh, quite yeah. extensively. Yeah, he, he has the kind of following, very devoted following, just like Trump still has his devoted following. Um, except I think the ch chances of Netanyahu coming back are higher than the chances of Trump coming back. Um, so um, he, you know, uh, so far, there has not been a lot. The, 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 the trial is continuing slowly. We don't really know what's going to happen. One of the state witnesses, the witnesses that was supposed to testify from the, a former um, uh, chief at the Ministry of Communication, um, they were supposed to testify against Netanyahu, died in a private plane crash yesterday. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're not really sure where this will go, the cynics are gonna say, it's just gonna go on forever and then it's gonna fizzle out and nothing will happen uh, with these corruption charges. Um, Netanyahu continues to be on the attack and he continues to talk about himself and his followers continue to talk about him as if he is the true leader, as if he, and, and, and they're continuing to attack Bennett. So there's that type of politics is very similar to what we're seeing here in the United States. Um, with with Trump and with Biden. And Netanyahu continues to be the head of the opposition. Uh, and they are looking all the time for openings. They are going to find any sort of friction within this coalition that is very tenuous. As soon as they find that opening, um, they're going to try to grab back power, either to call elections, to um, there's in parliamentary politics, you can vote down a government. There could be a vote of no confidence that then requires a new election. Um, so that they're they're keeping their eye out and they're trying to create um, more um, uh, um, uh, more problems for this coalition. They're trying to kind of shake things up uh, so that they can pull away. It's also not just a matter of a vote of no confidence. If there are members of the current coalition of Naftali Bennett's coalition who decide that there's certain policies that they're uncomfortable with and they don't want to support, even members of his own party, the right-wing party, they can defect. They can defect and move to the opposition right. or join the Likud, and that will topple the government. So they're right. trying to do that. But if the glue that brought the coalition together in the first place was opposition to Netanyahu, uh, that seems like it's maybe a very difficult thing to accomplish. That is, every member of the coalition knows that abandoning the coalition means that Netanyahu's back in, and, and are they going to be willing to accept that? Yeah, so I think we have these kind of two... Um, to really the, the fight that is going on now is with Netanyahu and his people and the people who are supporting him in the opposition, 
are doing everything that they can to portray Bennett as incompetent, to portray him, portray him as just a, um, a, um, uh, a kind of a puppet prime minister in the hands of the left wing, that he is um, creating, he's shepherding Israel into um, a doomsday scenario, and he's going to bring up about the end of the Jewish state as we know it. They're doing everything possible to undermine him and, um, and, and including, um, you know, attacking his character, attacking his credibility, um, to create the sense of, uh, of, um, uh, of, of um, where, where people are missing Netanyahu. So I think their, their, you know, their ideal situation is that even those who didn't like Netanyahu, who preferred to see a different government and Netanyahu go, um, will realize that things are so bad that they will want him back and that he's the only option. And he is making sure he's trying to control the Likud in a, in a, in a kind of with a tough, tough hand so that nobody would come up against him. What Naftali Bennett and that coalition was hoping for all along is that once Netanyahu is out of power and the Likud does a lot, a little bit of house cleaning and realizes that there has been corruption within the Likud, that Netanyahu might not have been the best leader. Other younger politicians also want a shot at being a prime minister. They also want to be able to advance their careers. So they were hoping that there would be a reshuffling within the Likud. So far, it's not happened, although we have seen some movement. Like there has been some, um, for example, there have been some reportings over certain irregularities with budget under Netanyahu. There's Likud investigation into campaign financing, all sorts of things like that, that might end up hurting Netanyahu. But that is the hope of Naftali Bennett and the coalition and the, and the right wing within this particular coalition is that if Netanyahu is out of power for enough time, um, his own party will end up sidelining him. That is what they're hoping. And Netanyahu is fighting to have that not happen. So what about public opinion here? What's since the new government formed, uh, has there been support among the public of the new government? Um, it varies. It's hard to tell. It's still a relatively new government. So um, there's always a grace period. So um, uh, initially there was um, one of the points of attack and one of the things that people are now concerned with that is hurting um, Bennett right now is uh, the situation with COVID. Um, and Netanyahu placed himself as the savior of Israel when it came to the pandemic. Um, and continuing to attack Bennett, you know, now with more um, uh, regulations, more, you know, they, they're trying to avoid more quarantines and closures uh, because that those are not popular policies, but there has been a, um, an uptick in hospitalization, in death. Um, so, of course, Netanyahu is jumping on that and saying, you know, I did everything I left for him, this ideal situation. We had this agreement with Pfizer. We were the country that had first had the vaccines and we're leading and now he screwed it all up. Um, so this is where now there's a mix in and the school year just started. So we're waiting to see how there's already been closures. There's more kids who are hospitalized. That is hurting Bennett in the polls and in public opinion. It sounds familiar. It's almost kind of parallel what's happening in the states that, yeah. that, 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 that in the states of the Republican governors, there's low vaccination rates. Yeah. Biden gets criticized for not curing COVID. Right? Yes. Yeah. So this is a very kind of similar situation where the government is kind of walking the fine line on one hand, um, understanding that public opinion, you know, people want schools open, people want businesses open, they want life to go back to normal. Um, but on the other hand, they have to worry about public health. Um, and um, yeah, so, so Israel was very fast to unroll the booster shots, for example. Um, uh, faster than they, at first they were going to wait until the FDA made a decision. The FDA has not made a decision yet. And then realizing uh, that this was going to be an issue and looking at some of the data that researchers in Israel were collecting, they decided to go ahead without waiting for the American FDA and give everybody boosters. And so um, people are now, everybody's eligible for a booster now in Israel already. So what are the tensions within this coalition 
uh, that might result in some defections or, or the government falling apart. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about the support of an Arab party, which is, uh, is uh, I believe that's it's quite unusual. Is it the first time an Arab party? An Islamic been... party. So there's the, the, um, the joint list, which was the Arab party of the previous governments that included kind of a um, coalition of all the different Arab parties that are um, based on single issues. It's split in these elections. And um, the leader of the kind of the bigger faction, the Arab party that is more progressive, that also supports Palestinian rights um, across the green line, um, did not join this government. Um, Ayman Ode, he did not vote against it. So it's with, with their support, with their non uh, um, um, opposition that it was, they were, they were able to help them create a government, but from the outside. It's the Islamic party um, led by somebody, a politician whose name is Abbas also, uh, just like Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority. Um, and uh, the Islamic party is not that far in terms of some of its characteristics uh, to the ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties. So although the ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties are not in the coalition, the Islamic party is now in the coalition. And I should say that one of the reasons why these Arab parties split and the Islamic party split from the other Arab parties is because of disagreements over, for example, social issues. The Islamic party is very much opposed to LGBTQ rights and, um, and, um, uh, and um, uh, certain aspects of, of women's rights and freedom. For example, they're closer to the ultra-Orthodox in some of their policy preferences. Uh, and uh, they could not, the, 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 the rest of the, the other Arab parties that were part of this coalition of Arab parties um, were not able to continue to um, be a unified party with the Islamic party. So Bennett was able, and this is kind of where the, um, where, where there's a dilemma on the one hand, it's, you know, we'd say it's great that there is an Islamic party in the coalition. Um, they have chairmanship of some committees. They're more involved in policymaking, their communities. Um, and, you know, and this is what there was some agreement on. This is where I'm saying there's the, was it, could they found the common denominator? The, one of the common denominators was that the Arab towns, villages, um, cities, uh, in Israel have been underfunded and have been discriminated against. And so now they're able to get more funding. This is something that there's an agreement across the board and the government on. So they wanted to be involved in Abbas's position in joining this coalition. And he got some criticism in joining a coalition with Naftali Bennett, who's right wing. Uh, he said, I don't care about that. I just want to be able to um, to, to serve my community. I want to be able, any place where I would be given um, some power, where I can be part, I can have a seat at the table and I can have my, you know, help my community, I'm going to do that and I'm going to take the seat at the table. And, and so he's, uh, he's, um, he's um, followed through with that. Um, but there is an issue. There's actually, they have some disagreements with the left wing and center parties um, that are parties of civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. Um, so there's a friction, there's, there's, there's a disagreement there too. Um, so that's the interesting thing is that the socially conservative, but yet diverse, religiously diverse party is now part of the coalition. Wow. Yeah. So any other tensions that, that, are, that stand out within the coalition? Um, so I think the it, some of the issues are going to there's been relative quiet partly because of covid um it seems that the american administration has found a fine line in getting bennett to agree not to expand settlement not to do anything that is flashy in terms of um uh, in, in, in terms of uh, Israeli expansion and the occupied territories, um, they agree, he agreed to um, provide and allow more financing for human rights, for food, um, so that he agreed to. In exchange, the American administration 
um, I believe has agreed not to push any kind of peace process or any sort of talks. Like there's no, there's not gonna be a, I don't think we're gonna see a push on that front. I don't think Biden is gonna try um, to do that kind of shuttling diplomacy like John Kerry did during Obama's administration. Um, doesn't seem like we're gonna see that. And I think that this was kind of, you know, finding a way to have calm waters that would keep this coalition together. What's going to be a problem is if we do see a rise in violent, uh, in violence between Palestinians and Israelis. So if we see more violence coming from the occupied territories, um, there's also frustration with the Palestinian Authority. Most Palestinians now, there's, there's polls that show that especially within um, the younger generation of Palestinians, they're frustrated and fed up with, a, with their own leadership. Um, and uh, in the May uh, uh, um, uh, in the May attacks conflict with Gaza, um, what we saw is that the younger generation um, found its voice and also found its connection to Palestinian Israelis. So the Palestinian citizens of Israel within the 1967 borders, um, in Jaffa, in Akko, in Haifa, um, so these are citizens, they um, find that their relationship with Palestinians living in occupation is much more important. And they see themselves as partners for the same causes of human rights uh, and civil rights. So if we see that continuing um, and supported by a narrative now in the United States where there's much more openness to discussing Palestinian rights, that is going to be a challenge to Naftali Bennett and to this coalition. How do they respond to that? Right. Yeah, it's a kind of important lesson in politics, right? You can you can strategize all you want and and can adopt a policy like this policy of downplaying uh, conflict with the Palestinians, but you don't have control over events. You don't right. have control over other players, and and uh, there's no no one Palestinian authority who can sort of keep the lid on. You mm -hmm. never know when some event's going to trigger uh, some conflict and that would have serious consequences. Right. I suppose that would also uh, help Netanyahu, right? Netanyahu could claim that that I'm the one, if, if there is a major conflict policy, yeah. you can go back and say, I'm the one to, to handle this, to settle it. Yeah, that would, told, that would definitely serve his, his purpose, which is one of the reasons why Bennett has tried to um, not to let anything, any situation escalate because he understands that if any, if it escalates, he's in big trouble because if, if um, violence escalates and he's pressured then from the right wing and from the opposition, from Netanyahu to be tough, to bomb more, to use more, you know, military force while in his own coalition, um, some significant members in his own coalition are very much opposed to it. And if he's caught in that situation, that's when his coalition uh, might lose, um, uh, you know, might, might, might lose its seat, might create, it might, that might create the grounds for a no confidence vote if members of his coalition um, end up leaving in protest, for example, because of excessive use of force. Since the May conflict, uh, what has been the attitude? I mean, there was this, you know, significant conflict in May uh, between Hamas and the Israelis with rockets flying back and forth um, and drone strikes in, in Gaza that, that killed many, many people and uh, death of a number of Israelis as well from rocket attacks. So, so that, has, has that really calm, calmed down now? What, what stance have the Palestinians seem to be taking uh, with this new government? Are they cautious or? It has, partly because um, this new government has, and also because of some of its coalition members, um, has allowed, uh, has eased some of the closures on Gaza and on the Palestinian territories. Um, remember that Israel controls who can come in and who can come out, and that means jobs. That means livelihood and income. And so when there's a closure, it means that Palestinians in Gaza who typically, you know, you have to get a permit to be able to come and work. Typically they work in um, kind of blue collar 
um, they, they work in construction, they work in restaurants, um, but this is where the jobs are. And when Israel closes the border, they can't go to their job, which means they can't get paid. There's about a 50% unemployment rate among young people in Gaza. So, um, which is extremely high. So this government has eased that, has allowed more humanitarian assistance, has allowed more assistance to come from Qatar, which typically funds um, uh, um, funds the Palestinian um, security forces. Those who, you know, there's also, there needs to be policing, policing of the streets and, um, and keeping the order. Um, and those forces, those po Palestinian police forces um, get paid through government money and that government money, the money that comes either to the Palestinian Authority or in Gaza to the Hamas is controlled, whether it comes in or not, is controlled by Israel. Another aspect of it is the taxes um, that this government has released to Palestinians who earn an income in Israel, pay taxes to Israel. These are taxes that then the Israeli government is supposed to, according to the agreement, pass back to the Palestinian Authority. Um, and every once in a while it holds that money hostage. So, um, so there has been some easing from what I understand. Again, this is just the beginning, so we still don't know. Um, uh, but for example, the, the knife attack yesterday in the central bus station in Jerusalem might signal a beginning of a new wave of violence. It's hard to tell um, when there is no sense of uh, positive developments, when there is a sense that everything is just going to be frozen and there is no uh, hope uh, for any sort of change. Um, that's when we can see more violence uh, brewing. And when Naftali Bennett says clearly, um, no Palestinian state will be created under my watch. And when he's um, uh, continuing, basically continuing right-wing policies, but maybe with a little bit more humanitarian touches, um, that might rub some of the Palestinian street the wrong way, um, hard to blame them. Right now they're trying to stop some of the draconian processes like evacuating with the pressure of the American government, like evacuating Palestinians out of their homes in East Jerusalem. Um, so Naftali Bennett is being attacked from the right on that. If, that. if decisions to evacuate, the more the Israeli Supreme Court is supportive of these evacuations and is an activist court that supports these policies to the right, um, then at some point the Palestinian population might get um, fed up with these policies. Uh, and, and that would create the grounds to force Naftali Bennett uh, into some sort of a policy that either, that, that will, you know, put him on the line. Then his true colors will. So I'm, I'm gonna put you on the spot Ruth, here a little bit uh, and ask you to make some, some predictions, look into the crystal ball uh, maybe, could you spell out some possible scenarios of what we might see uh, in the future in Israel, how this might go, you know, even though this, of course, is very uncertain? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was just telling my um, IR classes that political scientists are not in the business of prediction. <laughs> so with that caveat. We don't have a crystal ball. Um, but what I can say is that... Um, um, you know, one of the possible scenarios, and again, this is in the geopolitical, the global geopolitical realities that we're seeing with a change of an American administration. Um, I think that, and now with the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, um, we could, and, and the frustration of Palestinian, there was supposed to be a Palestinian election as well um, this summer and it got postponed indefinitely for now. I'm not sure if there's another date. Um, but that um, was also uh, frustrating to Palestinians. So we could, one of the possibilities, uh, you know, while Israel and this coalition of unlikely um, partners is dealing more with domestic issues, with the religious issues, dealing with climate change, for example, energy policy, healthcare with COVID, um, and trying not to talk about too much the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because there's no agreement among the coalition members. It could be that the Palestinians might see this as an opportunity right now, maybe before the midterm elections or before the 2024 American elections um, to 
um, to pressure the world uh, into paying attention to their uh, humanitarian civil, uh, civil rights crisis. Um, so if the United States was occupying Afghanistan for 20 years uh, and not achieving any sort of regime change, Israel has been occupying the West Bank and also Gaza. Gaza is not an independent state um, uh, for decades. Um, so, you know, we're, this is since 1967. If there is no peace process and there's no, uh, and there are no talks and there's no diplomacy, um, that means that there's a stalemate, that those people who are living in occupation, which means that they're living uh, with no citizenship, with no civil rights, they're living under military control, um, uh, frustrated with their own leadership that seems to be more cooperating with the Israeli authorities rather than representing their own people, um, might take things into their own hands and say, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, um, to, um, uh, to make a statement. And so nonviolent protests, um, more definitely there's more public engagement. We're seeing more Palestinians interface with the rest of the world. We're seeing more Palestinians who are on social media, who are being interviewed on media around the world, um, who are um, writing um, uh, writing articles in, in, in mainstream um, journals. So that, so the, the cause of uh, Palestine, the 4 million Palestinians who are stateless um, could be a major issue to tackle. And if that is a major issue and if they continue to be on the front line uh, of the news, I would say that that could be a breaking point for this coalition. Um, that could be a, a point where they're members of the coalition on the left, who would not give up, uh, or would not, who would not move from their stance of having to find a solution, having to end the occupation. So at some point, Israel is going to be confronted with a question of occupation. The question is when. Obviously, the Israeli government wants to push that away as much as possible. I think also the American government wants not to talk about it, um, but we do have. Congress members now who are talking about it and who want to talk about it and who are going to pressure Biden's administration to pay attention to the occupation. Um, and just as you know, yesterday, Blinken announced that although a small portion, not a big portion of security aid to Egypt is now going to be prone to um, uh, to a uh, is going to be held withheld uh, because of uh, human rights abuses. Uh, I think that this is an opening uh, for American security aid to Israel to also be scrutinized. And we're also all already seeing some scrutiny in Congress about whether that military aid is used to advance the occupation. Um, and this administration is definitely taking a more uh, progressive, more humanitarian minded um, approach. We'll see how strong it is. We'll see how willing they are uh, to pressure Israel. But if that pressure comes both from the Palestinian street and from the American administration, um, this particular coalition might unravel. You know, that's interesting. No, no matter what happens, it's clear that uh, in Israel, it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is at the center of everything. I mean, that, it is, but it's not talked about. But it's so not discussed, yeah. Not discussed because, so they, they don't say the word occupation, they're not talking about the conflict. And this is kind of one of, in some, for some, you know, some late night talk, show, talk shows, this is the ongoing joke of, you know, we're just ignoring, it's the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Um, because it's, it's, it, they can't agree on it. And they're in the right wing. And then this is where Bennett um, is, um, on the same page with the Likud. Um, so even though he disliked Netanyahu and he, they didn't want Netanyahu to continue to be prime minister, ideologically, this is where they are. Um, and they don't view it as occupation. They view it as uh, part of Israel. Um, they, they don't call the settlements settlements. They don't call the occupation illegal, um, even though according to international law, it is illegal. Um, they um, uh, they consider uh, the Judea and Samaria to be part of a greater Israel uh, and to be biblically, um, uh, um, uh, supposed to be biblically, this is that belongs to the Jewish state um, and uh, without any kind of contest. Um, they refuse to talk about 
what happens to 4 million Palestinians who live in those territories? Yeah, I'm probably going on a limb a bit here, but the, the way the Israelis treat the Palestinian conflict is somewhat similar to the way Americans treat race in America. Right? There's, there's a, an attempt to try to ignore the centrality of, of, uh, mm -hmm. of race in American policy and political history. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought it up because um, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, um, there was a rising kind of solidarity movement in among Palestinians with the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, even the separation wall uh, between uh, Israel and uh, the uh, West Bank. There's a big, big wall. That's, that's the wall that Trump wanted to model the um, Mexico-U.S. border wall on. Um, at some point, I saw a picture of, a, you know, a big graffiti drawing of George Floyd on it. Um, and so there's there's that solidarity. I think there's they're feeling that there's a lot of similarities, except uh, in the case of the Palestinians, they're not citizens. And so they are living under martial law uh, in the occupied territories a little, so that's that's different. And by when I say they're not citizens, it means that they have no passport. It means that they have papers. Anytime they want to leave, they have to get permission. It's much more difficult to travel. It's not just difficult to travel out of the occupied territories. There's also checkpoints within the occupied territories. So, you know, a Palestinian from the day they're born in the occupied territories, they see Israeli soldiers with guns everywhere. Um, and so that that is their reality, um, and um, and it's and and there are some they similarities in terms of the kind of the dynamic and the political dynamic with race in the United States. And there's they've they've forged certain bridges and connections already between the various movements. Okay, but before we uh, before I let you go, Professor Benardsi, could you comment a little bit about some of the other Middle East issues? Well, in particular, I'd like your take on on the American withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and what you see happening there and, and how that maybe connects with the larger, larger issues within the Middle East area and relationships with, with other countries like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Syria. Right, so um, I'll cut to the chase and I think that this, is, this has been a long time coming and I think that, that, that the Biden administration made a very good decision in withdrawing from Iraq. I know that Blinken is right now testifying and um, trying to fend off attacks and, you know, and there's, we can criticize how, how the withdrawal was handled, um, whether there could have been, they could have anticipated how quickly the Taliban was going to take over. I think the biggest lesson to learn here is that even 20 years of enormous funds and enormous um, uh, American and other allies training and investment in a country like Afghanistan, which is a country that is poor, not so big, even 20 years of investment cannot produce the kind of regime change, the kind of um, uh, capable alternative government that would, um, that, uh, that could withstand those forces. So, you know, and I know this from Israel, you know, growing up in a country where uh, everybody serves or almost everybody serves in the military and lives are lost. And it's very difficult when you're engaging in a war in a long time, it's political dif politically difficult to say, well, you know, this it was for naught. We, we should never have entered that war because then those who did lose lives and the money that was lost, it seems like it was for nothing. It seems like it could have been avoided, but I have to say that this could have been avoided. Um, the United States went into Afghanistan following the 9-11 attacks because Osama bin Laden was there because the Taliban hosted Al-Qaeda at the time. The mission of, uh, of uh, ousting Al-Qaeda, ousting the Taliban and, um, and diminishing the power of Al-Qaeda um, was accomplished in not so many years. And yet the United States remained in Afghanistan. So um, clearly staying in Afghanistan any longer would have not made any kind of difference. I think no matter when the United States exited Afghanistan, whether it's now or in five years, it would have been um, a, uh, uh, an unpleasant experience of exiting just like it was now. Um, I, I don't know enough about the visa procedures and what they, if, if they should have been changed maybe years ago and more Afghans could have already arrived in the United States many years ago, not just not waiting until the last minute. 
Um, so that I, I can't really comment on, but I think that the engagement in Afghanistan um, went on too long, should have never lasted this long and um, was doomed to fail because armies, militaries, uh, even of uh, democratic countries like the United States cannot produce regime change. And, you know, the Taliban are Afghan citizens. Um, we may not like them. We don't like their policies. We don't have to be their allies. We can sanction them, criticize them. We can pressure them. Um, but uh, uh, this type of involvement cannot does not produce the results, these ideal results that we think we want to produce. And we've learned this. The other issue was the fact that as soon as we went into Afghanistan in 2001, um, very soon after, a year and a half later, we went into Iraq for no particular important reason other than the pretense of, of weapons of mass destruction that we realized did not exist there. And that type of overstretching of American power overseas and in the Middle East um, was also detrimental to the Afghan project. Um, so the Iraq war um, is, is one of the big factors that doomed any sort of success in Afghanistan um, it was already doomed since from March 2003 when George Bush, um, with the support of Congress, uh, decided to um, uh, to attack Iraq and to go into Iraq. So I think that that was a, a big mistake. I think there's also an Israeli role here that we can acknowledge and we can't be shy about talking about it. Um, besides the United States, Israel was one of the only countries that was extremely supportive of invading Iraq and toppling Saddam Hussein. Um, and uh, just as then Netanyahu afterwards has been upping and, and inflaming the rhetoric about Iran. Um, regime change uh, uh, missions do not succeed. Uh, militaries are not equipped to do it. Uh, normally, usually intelligence doesn't even, can't even pick up on, uh, on various factors such as morale, um, such as the will to fight. This is why um, they're saying, you know, we didn't know that the Afghan government, Afghan forces were going to topple so quickly. Well, who are the Afghan forces? They're Afghan people who might have cousins who are Taliban or, you know, or people that they know. So, you know, it, these are the kinds of things that all of these various calculations of intelligence oftentimes miss, but we know this to be the case based on various um, historical examples that it just doesn't work. Okay. Well, uh, Professor Ben Arnstein, thanks so much for your insights. Uh, learned a lot about what's happening in Israel. Uh, and, and thanks for your, your views on, on Afghanistan. I appreciate very much your coming once again on Beyond Newsfeed, and I'm sure we'll have you back again uh, very soon. So thanks very much. Thank you, Professor Hudson. And thanks to Chris Judge, the, our producer uh, with the Office of Marketing and Communications at Providence College. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, please tell your friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.